This is Mornings with Simi. So when the pandemic started, there was so much hopeful discussion about getting a vaccine. And then, you know, we went through that whole process of getting it and people were thrilled when it happened. And then it kept happening, right? Because along came the first shot, then the second shot, and then it was the first booster. Now we're talking about the second booster. And BC residents were absolutely tremendous in taking up the first and second shot of the vaccine. Same can't be said, though, about boosters. Our contributor, Raji Silhol, joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, the health ministry opened up eligibility for that fourth shot that you talked about there, or second booster, uh, earlier this month, and it's to anyone 70 years or older. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the world, including in the States, it's for 50 years or older. But only 47% of Canadians have received a COVID-19 first booster shot. Now, that's not great uptake. And I wondered why. Why aren't people taking it? And it turns out it is that people are experiencing vaccine fatigue. Here's SFU researcher and immunologist Dr. Jamie Scott. Um, I think, first of all, that there is vaccination exhaustion. Uh, because people are being asked, you know, uh, to repeatedly get shots that make them feel ill, for sure. You know, for someone who especially is younger, under age 50, and doesn't have any pre-existing medical conditions, uh, I could see how they'd be going, well, you know, I'm probably getting as sick getting the shot as I would be uh, if I had got, you know, contracted COVID. Although, that's never really 100% the case. You, you really don't know how your body's going to respond. And the other question is, who are you going to transmit that to? Are you going to do it to your grandmother? You know, who, somebody, a friend of yours who has MS, like, who are you going to do it to? So, um, so that's the other part of it. Yeah, Simi, see, when I got the booster, I got sick. Like I got sicker than I did with getting the original vaccine shot. I got so sick. I was in bed on my back for I three days. I remember this, yeah. I was not sick like that in I don't remember ever when. Um, so that was for me <laughs> just a point where I went, oh my goodness, are we going to have to keep getting these boosters and is it worth it? It's such a complicated question because our vaccines, as we know, they the, these ones for COVID nineteen, they're not like those kinds of boost uh, kinds of vaccines we had, like measles, for example, right? Where those ones last you almost a lifetime. Um, these ones they wear off, and they don't wear off entirely. So that's the tricky part about it. Um, the hope is that scientists will get better at designing the vaccine, at uh, designing boosters so that they, the, they're more effective, they can last longer. Our bodies do have a kind of memory for them, uh, but they do wear off. Right. So I think people, yeah, this, uh, this story really resonates with me. I think that people are feeling exhausted of all this, uh, this booster talk. I think so too. I think part of it also goes to that original discussion about why people got fully vaccinated. And yes, we have this great rate of people being vaccinated with two shots, which we consider fully vaccinated, but that doesn't mean that everybody did it because they wanted to. And a lot of people did it because they had to. So if they're considered fully vaccinated now with the two shots, they think with the booster, well, I'm fully vaccinated. Do I, you know, why should I get another shot? So I think that also plays into it as well. 
Yeah, I'm hearing that from a lot of people in my community, for sure. And I think a lot of younger folks, I mean, the doctor in the interview there, Jamie Scott, she says, she refers to younger as anyone under 50. Um, I think Oh, that's sweet of her. That's That's very generous. Yeah, younger people, I do think, uh, have this mentality that you're talking about there of, okay, look, I I already pulled up my sleeve, I've done it, and I... And I don't want to get uh, sick again. I can't afford to be in bed again for another three days. However, one thing that she pointed out to me, and this is what made me really think, is that, you know, the numbers that come out about hospitalizations or X amount of people have died from COVID-19 are not the only picture you should be looking at. She said you should be looking at how many people were saved. How many people did not die of COVID-19 because of these vaccines? And so I think that I am going to be keeping that in mind as we are asked to get more boosters. But uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm not excited about spending more time in bed because of boosters. (laughs) I don't think anybody is excited about the idea, but it seems to be where we are at in 2022. Uh, Raji, thank you. Thanks for that, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal there. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. I would say there was quite a bit of frustration last week for customers of different institutions. CIBC had technical problems last week. Uh, Scotiabank had a lot of technical problems last week. And of course, Sunwing Airlines, that was the big one that was in the news. Uh, You know, people couldn't check in. They had a complete outage of their technical systems, their booking system. And so it was incredibly difficult. People stranded essentially uh, for an extra couple of days and it was not an easy situation. So there was lots of concern about this. Is this another example of why, you know, critical infrastructure providers should have to do more to disclose when they have a breach of cybersecurity? If they've got issues like that, what is their obligation to tell us, their customers, about what is going on? Well, joining us now is David Shipley, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Boceron Security. David, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Are you hearing more and more about this? Like, are these big companies under cyber attack more often these days? There is an absolute online onslaught against every major and small business company uh, in Canada and around the world. Over the last uh, two years, particularly during the pandemic, we've never seen the volume of the attacks that we've ever experienced um, over this period, and it's getting worse. And of course, the geopolitical situation we now find ourselves with the new Cold War just adds an even more uh, significant element of risk. And the key thing for Canadians is how do we trust in these major systems that we rely on for our lives if there is no transparency? Well, that's exactly what I was wondering too. Like, for instance, um, I, I had a problem with CIBC last week. Go to the bank, go to do some banking, nothing worked. Absolutely nothing worked. And they were like, sorry, you'll have to try again another day. And I I thought, well, that's no good because I needed to make a payment that day and nothing worked. And so if I don't make that payment, I'm still the one who pays the price for it. Well, and, and, and there is a difference between regular IT issues and outages and cybersecurity events. And I think it, it's up to regulators in the financial industry to hold um, companies accountable for the provision of services 
Um, and, and what we may be seeing, and I have no specific insight into these recent incidents, but, you know, the, the bill of the pandemic is more than just financial. It's, it's human. And this great transition we're seeing of employee turnover and absolute exhaustion, well, the bill is coming due. So we're seeing some of that. When we see with Sunwing, we know that that was the result of an actual malicious attack. And in those circumstances, we need to treat those incidents with the same transparency that we would re- we would require from the airline industry with a physical disaster. That is a federal agency empowered and required to investigate and report back about what happened, what we learned from it, and how we're going to try and prevent a similar incident in the future. Okay, but you just make some good points there. You uh, like does the public find out which one is which, and what what repercussions do we have to deal with these situations? Absolutely. And in Canada right now, we have the worst of all worlds for a situation. We have a voluntary compliance regime with respect to telling the federal government you've had a breach. I mean, we've had entire provincial healthcare systems held for ransom for weeks with thousands of surgeries canceled. And we still don't know the root cause of that or what's been learned. Or more importantly, have the hundred other hospital corporations across the country fixed any of the same problems that may be present in their systems? And so right now in Canada, a company can ask the federal government for help, but they don't have to. And the federal government cannot intervene and require an investigation and then publish to the appropriate stakeholders the necessary information to, to do better. Are we being naive here, David? Because you just said something a couple minutes ago that stayed with me, and that is because of the current geopolitical situation. So I assume you're talking about like Russia and Ukraine. Has that made this worse? Like, should we expect more cyber attacks? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, we have been incredibly lucky. Uh, In the last two weeks, the Americans uh, and the Ukrainian officials have stopped two major uh, cyber attacks against critical infrastructure, one before it even started that would have crippled natural gas plants and electrical plants um, and affects, you know, companies around the world using a certain manufacturer's equipment. And in the Ukraine, uh, they managed to shut down yet another massive power outage attack. Russia's pulled two of those off so far, one in 2015, one in 2016. This one looked to be similar, if not larger in, in ambition, and it was stopped. And it's it's been by preparation and good luck, but not with the level of transparency here in Canada that people should realize just to see the extent of the threat we're under. And all these big companies, too, as you alluded to, they're they're not probably not fully staffed up in all their departments to deal with these issues either. No, there's a there's a three million worker shortage in cybersecurity skills, and that's that's increased for a million over the course of the pandemic. Uh, so they're massively understaffed. This is an industry that burns people out very quickly because of the stresses of it and the volume of attacks. And so it's under incredible strain. And even our federal government can't find enough employees to help protect uh, itself, let alone um, the major enterprises. And, and frankly, small and mid-sized businesses are getting uh, hammered away at as well, and they have no hope of accessing some of these resources. When you say 3 million worker shortage, is that North American-wide? That's globally, um, and uh, it's only getting worse. So what kind of skills are we talking about here, David? Like, what kind of people would fill these roles? Well, actually, far more than what many people would think. You'd think it's a, it's a bunch of computer programmers or computer scientists or forensic investigators, but there's a need for all kinds of different skills, everything from the work that, uh, that I do, which is on the human side of cybersecurity, looking at people and culture and educating 
uh, folks on, on sort of good cyber hygiene to auditors to help uh, evaluate security controls, um, project managers, and more. So there is a wealth of different opportunities available for people with different backgrounds and skills. And frankly, we need more diversity in this industry to uh, to change the trajectory it's on. Do you, okay, do you see anything changing from that um, trajectory that it's on? Like, are people in charge paying attention? So what, part of the work that I do is I'm also the co-chair for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce's national cybersecurity awareness campaign called Cyber Right Now. And we're working in lobbying the federal government to invest more in creating more skills development programs and paths. Um, we're seeing some great programs like at uh, the Rogers Cybersecurity Catalyst in Toronto. There's a program for folks who want to change careers. You know, it's a year-long uh, program that gets them into cybersecurity careers. And we need to see that across the country in a big way, particularly for um, groups that have uh, been underrepresented in the industry, particularly women and and other uh, groups. So their opportunity is there. If people think, hey, this might be a good time to do it, this is a good time to do it. This is an amazing time to do it. And it's the kind of career that can be exceptionally fulfilling um, when you think about your ability to help protect um, individuals, businesses, and society against those who would seek to, to make ill-gotten criminal gains or try and cause us harm uh, because of geopolitics. Interesting. All right, David, thank you for your time. You're always welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. There were such high hopes that we were going to get back to more of a normal summer in Vancouver this year. I mean, we know the celebration of light was coming back. That was a great sign. And then there was this very busy Canada Day weekend festival with Vancouver's inaugural Formula E electric motorsports race that so many people were looking forward to. Except we've now heard, well, the organizers have kind of pulled the plug on this. So this would have been the first time world-class racing hit Vancouver streets since the Molson Indy left town, what was that, 20 or so years ago? So what happened here? What are the challenges when it comes to having some of these big events in the city? Joining us now is Sarah, Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councilor, to talk more about that. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Sydney. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So when we talk about the challenges, what's going on here? What were some of the obstacles? Well, I think whenever um, you're taking on a brand new event that's never happened before, um, they are complex and they are expensive to put on and to produce. Um, And this was a shorter runway uh, and period of time. And sometimes you might have been getting some events up and running. But um, I brought a motion forward together with Councillor Michael Weeb. And we wanted to sort of send a message the city is open for business and make sure that we did everything that we can. Um, in this case, the organizers uh, are trying to literally build a track in the middle of an urban center in downtown Vancouver, and they're starting fresh, um, working with new partners. And I think um, it, it just ran out of time in order to try to pull this off for July 2nd. Um, and so they've exercised their right under the host city agreement um, to look at a future date. And I'm really hopeful that they'll be able to pull that off because it was, I actually really didn't realize how many race fans there are in the city of Vancouver because the response to this was really positive. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who grew up with the Molson Indy and remember that when it was a part of the, the city and probably wanted to see something like that again. So are you hopeful that this might still happen? And was there anything that the city needed to do more of to help out? Um, I am really hopeful um, that they'll be able to do it again. I was looking at the race calendar this morning and, you know, it was exciting to see Vancouver's name alongside cities like Rome and Berlin and London and New York um, as part of the ABB Formula E circuit. 
Um, so I'm hopeful that they'll keep going um, to sort of complete the work that they need to do to deliver the event. I know they have to work with a lot of different partners in the city from Science World and um, Concord, all that were sort of impacted by where the race location is going to be. So it's a lot to pull together. Um, and I really like to see it happen. I know how hard it is to do events, though, because you mentioned the Celebration of Light, and years ago I was the marketing chair of that one, and I remember when um, they had to look for a new sponsorship, because remember, tobacco sponsorships right. were cancelled, and um, all of a sudden events have to look for new levels of funding. And I think what's really different about an event like this with Formula E is that there's no city funding or government funding that goes into it. It's entirely private. Um, and that was in the motion deliberately that uh, we brought forward, that taxpayers wouldn't be on the hook for it. But it's quite different than something like FIFA or the Olympics, where you have different levels of government that are investing financially um, to help make it go. Um, and I remember, you know, literally sitting at meetings for the Celebration of Light when they wondered whether or not they could, you know, they had to stop the fireworks order coming over from Asia because we didn't know if we had enough money to run the event. Um, and then miraculously, you know, you would sort of eke out sponsorship at the last minute. Um, so these are tough, these are really tough things to do. But, you know, this, I think the mayor announced that he was willing to put $5 million into FIFA, but we don't put any money into events like this. So we really put it all on the shoulders of the event organizers. Right. So are you still hopeful, perhaps, that this will go forward? Uh, I'd love to see it in future years. I think there's a real appetite for it. I think it was a sustainable event, which was um, really appealing um, and attractive to have. Um, and I think that the tourism sector is very welcoming of it, as well as re- local residents. So um, if they can pull it off, I'd love to see it. Now, one other thing we wanted to talk to you about this morning is that I understand that there's um, a public meeting going on tonight. It's a virtual town hall. You're doing another one of those, but this one about affordable housing? Yeah, we are. We're doing it. It's, we're calling it the Housing Possibilities one um, and really having a good dialogue moderated by your colleague, Linda Steele, your former colleague. Um, I'm with a great panel of people to talk about if we need more diverse housing choices and that the fact that there should be a, a really um, a, a much more of a continuum of housing from just towers and luxury condos, um, you know, to single family homes and what does that look like um, and how can we grow creatively as our city grows and densifies. So I'm looking forward to a good discussion. It's completely uh, unplugged, kind of undirected conversation with three panelists that we've got um, in the sector, um, Jake Bryce from Small Works and Jordan McDonald from Fabric Living and Mary Pinenberg, who's an urban planner. So hosted by myself and Councilor Bly and Councilor Dominato. So I'm looking forward to um, having a good chat about it. People can dial in, they can ask their questions. Um, we had a pretty lively debate when we did the public safety forum, so hoping that we get a similar kind of conversation tonight on the housing possibilities. Okay, so how can people participate? Uh, we have a website called Speaking of Van, V-A-N, for Vancouver, speakingofvan.ca, um, and they can just go and sign up, and then they'll be sent a, a link to the Zoom because we're doing it as a virtual forum. All right. Well, listen, thanks very much. No worries. Have a great day. You too. Sarah Kirby, Young Vancouver City Councillor, talking about the challenges of putting on big events like that, what was supposed to happen on Canada Day weekend, that big uh, E-Pre race that was supposed to happen here, and now it's not. Organizers need some more time to make that happen, so we'll see if they can still manage to pull that off, but at some point in the future. Now, were you disappointed to hear that? Were you looking forward to it? I think we even gave away tickets at some point for that, so I'd imagine there's quite a few disappointed people out there. Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Listen, we discuss, we debate the different causes to our housing market craziness all the time. But speculation definitely plays a role in this, right? We know that there's been a lot of speculation that, oh, foreign buyers are driving up these prices. But what about the role 
of domestic speculators too. Joining us now to talk more about that is Dr. Mike Moffitt, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the University of Ottawa's Smart Prosperity Institute. Dr. Moffitt, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Is this, you think, something that has been overlooked? Do we not talk enough about domestic speculation? Yeah, I think we tend to sort of scapegoat uh, people who are sort of overseas as being uh, the speculators. But any time you have a, a scarce asset like we have in real estate that's going up in value, that's going to attract money. So we're seeing across the country, uh, wherever we have a real estate market that's uh, in short supply where population growth is exceeding uh, the number of new homes built, you see prices going up. And that's across most of Canada. But we do have markets like in Saskatchewan and Newfoundland uh, where the populations aren't rising that we really haven't seen these price increases. So what we've essentially had over the last few years is uh, uh, conditions uh, ripe for speculation, a lot of cheap money flowing uh, through the market and uh, an already existing shortage of homes. Okay, so you're saying is that part of the problem then in places like BC and Ontario is that not only do we need a home, but people are saying, hey, this is a way to make good money. And it could be anybody doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it could be anything uh, from from corporations to uh, international students to, you know, just certain mom and pop investors going, hey, I've done really well during uh, the pandemic. You've got a lot of white collar uh, professionals who, you know, aren't going on vacation, they're not commuting, they're not buying new cars, they've saved a lot of money during the pandemic, interest rates are really low, so they're saying, you know what, why don't, why don't I buy a rental property, because they seem to be uh, going up in value. Um, they've done really well for themselves over the last couple of right. years. So if that's also contributing to increasing prices, then Dr. Moffat, what do we do about that? Well, I think there's a couple things. Uh, so I think the, the first thing that is, I think some of that is going to correct itself uh, by itself with the Bank of Canada increasing interest rates. And as those sort of white collar professionals go back to buying new cars, uh, buying, uh, uh, going on vacation, saving less money, that should ease some of the pressures. But we also need to address uh, these underlying su- supply shortages, or we're just going to be on the cycle again of uh you know roller coaster uh price increases we've heard about some reports saying that because of the in, in like increase in interest rates that that will put us on a downward trajectory for the next couple of years do you think that will have a significant impact in prices i i do yeah i do now unfortunately i don't think that's going to help affordability any because uh you know first-time home buyers yeah, they might have to pay a little bit less in a down payment, but they're going to be paying higher interest costs. So, you know, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Well, we are going to get uh, the pressure taken off of prices. We may even see a price uh, decrease. That doesn't make it uh, any more affordable for young families because now they're paying more in interest costs. Right, but the problem is also people who are selling their homes, they still want to make some money off the sale of their homes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's part of what we're seeing now in, the, in a few markets. Uh, I'm from southwestern Ontario. You're starting to see that. I think you're starting to see some older homeowners going, you know what, this seems like the top of the market. I'm going to sell now uh, because I'm not sure 12 to 18 months now prices prices will be this high. So I think we're already uh, starting to see that of homeowners starting to wonder, okay, are these uh, price gains actually real? Is there anything, any tool that can be done to curb speculation, Dr. Moffat? I know that governments have tried a a lot of different things here in BC. They've pulled a lot of levers, but is there anything that actually works? 
Well, I, I think there's a few things. I think uh, NBC, the uh, vacant home tax, particularly in the condo market, did ease pressures uh, somewhat. Uh, the federal government does want to have a uh, beneficial registry ownership. Right now, we actually don't know often, you know, who's buying these homes. Uh, you know, is it numbered corporations or individuals, that kind of thing. So having some some better data there, uh, I think, would certainly help, you know, changing the tax treatment of, of people who are flipping homes every every few months. So there are things that, that need to be done. But I think it's important with speculation that we don't just uh, treat the symptoms of going after the speculators, but we also need to fix the system to to make just speculation less attractive in the first place. How do we do that? Uh, We need more homes. I mean, that's the bottom line is, uh, you know, if our population keeps growing faster than the number of new homes, we're always going to attract speculators. And we've seen uh, the prime minister talk about this here in Ontario. We've seen Doug Ford talk about it, that we have liberals and conservatives all kind of singing from the same playbook that, yeah, there are things we can do on the demand side, but we need to get more homes and more homes for families because that tends to be where the shortages are, you know, three and four bedroom units. Right. And also, I know in the United States, I've been reading about this, too, about how big companies, hedge funds are now buying up real estate in the they're getting into the rental market, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We are seeing that and that's uh, that's pushing up the price of homes. And I think we need to, to watch that. I think it's, you know, it's a good thing if uh, these big companies are creating new build, new purpose built rentals. That's a fantastic thing. We need rentals, but they're just going around buying up existing uh, single family homes. That gets to be a problem. So we need to find a way to, to make it for these corporations. So they're building new homes, building new student rentals. We're, we're losing a lot of single family homes across Canada because they're getting turned into rentals for college and university students. If we can incent those companies to build new units for them instead, that would go a long way to creating affordability for families. I tell you, I feel like if it's not one thing, it's another. Dr. Moffitt, listen, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate that. Dr. Mike Moffitt, Senior Director of Policy and Innovation at the University of Ottawa's Smart Prosperity Institute, talking about the role that local speculation, domestic speculation plays in red-hot home prices. It's not always interest from overseas that is driving up the market. It's an awful lot of people locally who are also speculating. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. It is World Autism Month, and that means it is a great time to talk about all the hard work that goes into supporting families dealing with an autism diagnosis. Did you know that neurodivergent conditions, including autism, are some of the most prevalent disorders in kids today? About one in 66 kids across Canada are impacted. And there are other medical conditions that complicate the issue as well, things like uh, sleep disorders and mental health issues like anxiety or depression. So a couple of things that we wanted to mention here this morning. Wanted to make sure that we talk about the work the CKNW Kids Fund does to help out with the funding process in supporting families. Every individual's treatment is unique and the Kids Fund addresses things from speech therapy to necessary equipment that a family might need. And another unique story about a thank you to the people who help make that happen. For instance, you hear commercials all the time for groups like uh, the Ashton uh, Service Group, right? The Ashton Conditioner Heat Pump Systems. 
Well, they've actually done something extraordinary as well. So they have a daughter. The company is owned by Brian and Julie. They have a daughter who was working to become a teacher. She was doing her practicum at a school for her teaching degree. And she noticed that there were many kids in kindergarten who you know, were showing some signs of difficulty and ended up with learning difficulties, but it was taking them so long to get diagnosed. She went home, talked to her parents about it. Well, guess what? They decided they could help out. CKNW Kids Fund, they got together with them and they had a commitment of $20,000 on Pledge Day uh, to help out with this. So we wanted to talk about where that money goes and the work that gets done from stories like that. Joining us now is Julia Boyle, the Executive Director of Autism BC. Julia, thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. What kind of opportunities, when you, we talk about the donations all the time, right? We try to get people on board, but Julia, what kind of an impact does that make in at Autism BC? Oh, it has an incredible impact. I mean, not only by helping us keep our doors open and helping us run programs that um, are really meaningful and uh, accessible places for the autistic community to come together and connect and access programs like social clubs, Minecraft club that we run, um, that's supported by CKNW, where uh, kids on the autism spectrum can have a safe, sp- safe space to come together and play games that they enjoy uh, that they might not necessarily have access to outside of Autism BC. So we're super grateful for the support. And um, yeah, we look forward to continuing to partner, partner with CKNW in the future. So, so when you do have something like, you know, World Autism Month, what are the things that you want to emphasize, Julia? What do you want people to know? Really, I think um, World Autism Month or World, World Acceptance Month is a time to listen to autistic voices. It's uh, a time to rethink our biases about autism and to learn how to be better allies. Uh, the month kicks off on World Autism Day, which is o- October, uh, not October, April 2nd. Um, and this year we're running a campaign uh, that we're really proud of. Uh, we have five autistic self-advocates that are sharing their stories uh, and really, it's this, their stories of intersectionality, because we know that autism doesn't doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, when you're autistic, you have, uh, you know, you have you come from different cultures, different races, uh, different circumstances in your life. And we can't really support autistic people unless we're looking at them as a whole person and the other things that they experience in life. Uh, so this year, we have five videos that we've um, produced with five different self-advocates. Uh, We have Cole, who is a a two-spirited Afro-Indigenous person who's also autistic. We have Juliana, who is recently diagnosed with Crohn's disease, who's also autistic. Uh, We have Ulina, who is a mixed-race single mother um, and autistic. And we have Millie, who is queer, non-binary, and a person who uses drugs um, and is autistic. And we also have Kiera, who is an Asian adoptee, uh, who also experiences anxiety, depression, and autism. So we're so excited to share their stories. They're very powerful. Uh, If you want to check them out, you can go to our YouTube channel at YouTube um, slash Autism BC to check out their stories. I really recommend it. Uh, Autism Acceptance Month is a great time, as I mentioned, to listen to autistic voices, uh, to challenge our biases, and to be better allies to them. It also sounds like this really runs the gamut age-wise too. We always tend to think that we're talking about kids here, but there's a lot of adults who deal with this too, aren't there? Yeah, I think uh, 
you know, autism acceptance month, you know, we, we, we try to honor this term that people say nothing about us without us. This is very much a, a notion that uh, is part of the disability movement is part of the autistic community. So we want to listen to the experiences of uh, autistic adults because um, autistic kids grow up to become autistic adults. So uh, it's a, it's a good time. And, and the stories are, are, are very powerful. They also speak about childhood and childhood experiences. Are, are we getting better at that? I, I feel, you know, from my perspective, Julia, that we have been doing stories for, you know, 20 plus 25 years on supporting families with kids who have an autism diagnosis, but are we getting any better at offering that support? I think we are. And I think, as I mentioned, it comes from really listening to autistic people. They, they know themselves best. They know what they need. And the more we listen to them, the more, you know, successfully we will be able to support them. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there has, there has been a lot of change. There has been a lot of progress. We definitely aren't there yet. Um, which is why months like this are important. And I also wanted to point out that people don't stop being autistic um, May first, so you right. know, one month is not uh, is is not enough to to keep the autism acceptance movement um, moving. Uh, but April is a great time to shine a light on on really this celebrate the successes, celebrate the strengths of the community, um, and keep keep moving forward. What kind of an impact does it have when you talk about dealing with kids early? You know, getting that diagnosis as young as possible. What kind of a difference does that make? Yeah, I think early early identifying um, if someone is on the autism spectrum early is is so key because it means that um, their school can support them better, their family can support them better. Uh, it means that they can access the supports that are going to make their lives, um, you know, in some ways less traumatic, make their lives uh, easier. Uh, I also think that you know when you, you're growing up and you're facing challenges. Knowing that you're autistic um, helps you to know yourself better, helps you to understand who you are and why you are the way that you are. You know, we hear that a lot from autistic adults as well of just getting a diagnosis and knowing that uh, all of a sudden their lives kind of make sense to them. Um, and and they, they kind of, in a way, more not having not known that when they were younger. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think early intervention, early um, diagnosis is, is definitely key. And a lot of that comes from um, awareness and um, for people to know what the what, you know, signs and symptoms of autism look like in children and for them to be referred on to the professionals that can help um, figure out if that child uh, needs a, an assessment and needs supports. So where once again, Julia, then where can people find out more information about all of this? Our website is loaded with information. You can go to www.autismbc.ca. We have a resource section on our our website where you can learn, um, you know, if you don't know very much about autism, there is lots for you there. If you are someone who, um, if you're a parent of a child who's 25, there's um, lots of information for you there. So check out our website, uh, check out our social, social media channels as well. Uh, and I'd also encourage, uh, I'd encourage people to follow autistic self-advocates um, and learn from them and uh, better understand their experiences so that we're not operating from a place of bias. Good advice for this World Autism Month. Julia, thank you.
Thank you so much. That's Julia Boyle, Executive Director of Autism BC. Now, the CKW Kids Fund has granted them funding for children and youth programs for the last, oh, three or four years now. And it's a good time, as Julia mentioned, to get to know some of those issues. So check out their website at autismbc.ca.